Welcome to the Afghanistan Project Podcast. I'm Beth Bailey, and today I'm excited to welcome Andy Sullivan, the Director of Advocacy for Nonprofit Organization No One Left Behind. We're excited today to give listeners an update on the Special Immigrant Visa Program and about all the great work that No One Left Behind is doing for U.S. allies. Uh, about Andy, he is an Erie PA native and a graduate of the Virginia Military Institute. And for over nine years, he served as an infantry officer in the U.S. Army, deploying to Iraq, Eastern Europe, and Zabul, Afghanistan. Andy has his master's in public policy from Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. Andy, it's so great to see you today. And I know we've had listeners explicitly ask for this update on the SIV program. So I'm glad that you're able to give that and, and to see what else we can get into today. Yeah, Beth, I'm incredibly excited to be here. Um, I know we had talked about this. My predecessor at No One Left Behind, uh, Jeff Faniff, uh, was, I believe, on the original, the first episode of the podcast. Uh, so I'm, I'm glad that I get my turn. Hopefully I can live up to the high bar he set. I think you will. I think this is going to be excellent. Like you said, it's a great bookend. You know, we started with Jeff at No One Left Behind, and we're ending this year with you and No One Left Behind. So what I'd love to start with, I always like to hear about what uh, you know, anybody who comes on their history in Afghanistan. And so I'd love to hear about your experience in Zabul uh, as a rifle company commander. You know, what was the status of the province like when you were there? Um, what were you tasked with doing? And what was your overall feeling about the fight that you found yourself in? Yeah, I would love to talk about it, Beth. So um, I was there in, let's see, it would have been May 2013 until uh, March of 2014. Uh, and my first few months there, I was a brigade uh, uh, battle captain and then the chief of operations for the brigade, so in charge of all current operations. Um, and after about a month or two of doing that, I was lucky enough to uh, assume command of a rifle company. Uh, and at that time, our brigade was kind of a, a hybrid brigade where we were doing security force assistance mission uh, and we had one maneuver company. And I was lucky enough to command the maneuver company, um, so really got to go kind of throughout the province uh, and whenever we had operations, I got to lead them. Uh, at that time, everything we did was, you know, by, with, and through the Afghan National Army. So we were partnered for everything that we did, whether it was, um, you know, kind of vehicle patrols, whether it was air assaults, uh, we always had our Afghan partners with us. Um, you know, one of the things that, uh, that I thought was, you know, kind of concerning when I was there was, uh, you know, we were a brigade. Uh, we knew we were going to be replaced by a battalion. Um, and, you know, it was not as kinetic as, as, you know, certain times in, you know, Helmand or, uh, you know, Battle of Marja, but we took contact pretty regularly, whether it was dismounted patrols, whether it was mounted patrols, we, you know, ran into uh, way too many IEDs, we found way too many others. Um, and so it was, you know, a relatively kinetic uh, uh, place, and we were being replaced by a battalion. So I did not have a ton of hope that it was going to get less kinetic. Um, and I kind of juxtaposed that with my first two deployments were to Iraq. And I was there in 2009 and I saw how, you know, violent and kinetic it was. And then I was there in 2011 as part of the last units for Operation New Dawn. Uh, my battalion was actually the last one to road march out of Anbar to Kuwait. And we road marched from Western Anbar in Al-Assad Air Base all the way down to Kuwait. Uh, I think there was one missed IED on one of our serials. That was it. Uh, it was an incredibly peaceful time. Um, and then you look a few years later, uh, ISIS had taken over, you know, a vast majority of Iraq. And so, you know, as I was thinking to myself, I, I looked at what was a great security situation, relatively speaking, in Iraq when I left and how quickly it dissolved 
And then I kind of juxtaposed that with what was happening in Afghanistan, where that was 2014, we were already drawing down from surge. I, I did not have a ton of hope. Uh, and so, you know, I know you've had uh, Bill Roggio on here, Beth. Um, one of the things that I, I loved him for putting together, I hated seeing, um, they had a great map that showed district by district um, as, you know, provinces and districts fell. And so, you know, when watching that after I left Afghanistan, you know, into 2019 and 2020 and 2021, um, it was heartbreaking, but unexpected for me. So I know I went all over the place on that one, but uh, uh, it was a great experience, albeit, uh, you know, even when I was there, I, I did not have um, the most optimism for, for the trajectory of, of that war. Yeah, it's, it's exactly the way I felt when I left the intelligence world in 2013, where I thought this is just going to hell in a handbasket. And the question is, how long and how bad will it be? And I, I didn't watch all of that because it just broke my heart. And it broke my heart for the veterans I was writing about at the time. And it broke, you know, there it was so disappointing as somebody who was involved. But peripherally, my feet were never on the ground in Afghanistan. So I can't imagine, you know. I heard many stories from veterans of the fight about how it felt for them to watch districts fall to the Taliban in those years, like the years you were in Zabul, you know, there um, to watch, you know, Sangin fall into Taliban hands far before the yeah. withdrawal took place. And yeah, it, it's, it's hard. I, I imagine to see all of that. And, and like you said, to have seen Iraq before that and to kind of have this notion, even though there's such different, countries and different problem sets, you know, you can't replace, like you said, a brigade with a battalion that it, and then expect that you're going to find a less kinetic atmosphere when you're anyway, I, we don't have to belabor that, but that was a great answer. Um, what I would love to know too, I'm, I'm making this educated guess just from the other people who've sat here and the other um, passionate Afghanistan advocates that I've talked with, that you did not stumble across your job at No One Left Behind by accident. You know, it wasn't like, oh, I'd really love to dedicate my life <laughs> to this. Uh, Cause it is, it's a, a very difficult job to be in, a difficult problem set to still be involved in. Um, so can you tell me what was it about the work with that organization that drew you to it that made you want to be part of this ongoing effort? Absolutely. Uh, so I never anticipated on being an advocate at all. That was not in the uh, uh, in the cards for me. At least I didn't think so. Uh, so coming out of grad school, I actually was picked up for something called the Presidential Management Fellowship. Um, had planned on, was hired by State Department, was, was supposed to go and work uh, as a legislative liaison for State Department. Uh, COVID hit, it took way too long to get a security clearance. Um, and so, you know, while I was kind of, you know, just biding time, I found a uh, another nonprofit called With Honor Action. They worked on bipartisan uh, politics. Um, and I started working with them. And, and one of the things that I was working on was um, issues related to Afghan SFDs. Um, now, it was, it was just a small part of a larger por uh, portfolio of issues. Um, that you know involved national security and traditional veterans affairs, but it was far and away my absolute favorite aspect of the job. Um, at that time, you did have the uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan, um, you know, the collapse of the government, um, and so we really leaned into uh, the work on Afghan and SIV issues. Um, but again, part of a larger portfolio. So when my predecessor Jeff was leaving. Uh, he actually had reached out and said, hey, I'm leaving. Do you know anybody who's who'd be good for this? And I'm like, well, you know, actually, I would love to narrow my portfolio uh, and scope in on this uh, and really lean into the work. Um, and so that's what professionally brought me here. 
Now, you know, what personally got me involved in it? Uh, I had an incredible interpreter. So um, because I was a company commander, when I was in Afghanistan, I had really um, my pick of interpreters. Um, and so I had a great, I'm only going to give his last name because his first name, um, I won't give him away, but Ahmadi was his last name. He was incredible, um, you know, probably spent more time with me than just about anybody at that deployment. Maybe my first sergeant, but um, really he was next to me 24 seven. Um, great human being. We thankfully got him an SIV. He got to the US in 2016. Um, he is married, has kids, has a great life in the Pacific Northwest. Um, but as amazing as he was, I knew he wasn't unique. And there were tens of thousands of others that uh, deserved it. And so I wanted to make sure that they had the uh, same opportunities that he did. That's really incredible. I'm glad too to hear that he obviously got through that program in a, in a pretty short period of time compared to so many people who say started looking for an SIV in you know, 2013, 2014 and still didn't have one when the withdrawal came around. Oh, On top I mean, of the fact that he was quick and he started in 2012 and you know got in 2016 tells you uh, something about the program there. Absolutely. And yeah, there have been lots of holdups and issues in that program that, you know, we've addressed on the podcast before. We don't have to address them again, but yeah, it's, it's devastating to hear those stories that, that the people who were still stuck, but I'm glad it's so good to hear a happy story um, like that, especially somebody who was clearly so deserving um, as all of these applicants are. Um, Let's start off with this SIV update by talking about just how many people, how many of those amazing people who worked alongside us, who helped us build uh, the institutions that were going to lead to democracy in Afghanistan, who did all of this work in support of us, how many of them are still waiting on their SIVs in Afghanistan or Pakistan right now? Yeah, so it's, it's an incredibly tough question. I'm going to throw a bunch of numbers at you. I'm going to throw a bunch of caveats. So you know, let me know when I get too crazy here. Um, but firstly, what I'd say is the U.S. government failed in that we never actually were forward looking and kept track of people as they became SIV eligible. Right. So we never said, OK, Amadi, you hit your you know, two years of service or then when we modified the program. So it was one year of service. We never said, yep, you know, you are good. We're going to get all of your demographic information and contact information. You are now on this roster of SIVs. We didn't do that. And so we now have to look, we don't actually have a set list. We actually have to look at how many applicants are out there and kind of what have been historic approvable rates uh, to figure out you know, how many folks are out there. That's one caveat. Second caveat, um, I know you had um, Kevin Reardon from um, uh, the Association of Afghan Prosecutors. Um, you know, we also have these edge cases where SIV has a very strict you know, legal definition that's written in the statute um, maybe doesn't always encompass everyone that's deserving, right? So the numbers I'm going to give you also would not inherently capture folks that maybe should be SIV eligible, but under the current statute aren't. Um, so firstly, uh, as of the last quarterly report, which was June 30th, uh, there were 148,912, so just under 149,000 pending principal applicants. And that is principal applicants, that is just the person that's applying. So if it's you know, a, a male interpreter would just be that male interpreter wouldn't capture his, you know, spouse and and children. And normally we found that um, for SIVs, you can actually assume that there's going to be 4.2 uh, dependents per applicant. So take 149,000 and times it by 4.2. Now, we know that 149,000, not all of those are going to be bona fide SIV cases. 
Um, you know, quite frankly, there are going to be people that are trying to seek a pathway out of Afghanistan that may not be SIV eligible. And I don't begrudge them. If I was in their shoes, I probably would as well. But even if we take what has been the historic um, chief of mission approval, so that's one of the key steps as part of the SIV program. Um, if we look at the, the chief of mission approval rate, that's 37%. So 37% of 149,000, don't make me do public math, but I think it gets you right around 55,000 just principal applicants um, mm. that would still be pending. And then you times that by 4.2 for you know associated family members. Um, and you're looking as many as you know 220,000 or so um, Afghans that could be out there waiting. Um, so it is an incredible number. And again, that, that does not factor in, you know, groups that we think really should be deserving of SIVs, whether it be, um, I don't know if your audience is familiar with the female tactical platoons, um, you know, some of the ANA special operators, pilots, you know, folks, prosecutors, um, NDS folks, you know, there are a lot of people that may have really good valid claims for um, needing the protection of an SIV program as opposed to uh, the U.S. RAP program. And so, um, it's a pretty big amount that's unfortunately still out there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we'll talk about those, you know, the female tactical platoons, the prosecutors, those, because there are efforts to get them included, which I definitely think we'll, we'll be talking about. Um, what, how long is it going to take to bring all of those eligible people here and process them and do all the things that have to occur? Um, it's a great question. <clears throat> So again, get get ready. I hope mm -hmm. you've got a pen and paper to write these down because we're, we're going to do some numbers here. So again, from that same last quarterly report from the State Department, uh, there are 138,000 um, folks that are pending COM approval. So that means they've either submitted some of their documents and maybe they got kicked back or they've got a submitted package that is waiting for a chief of mission approval. So you have to take that 139,000. The next thing you need to look at is how many chief of mission approvals were actually adjudicated in the last quarter. And so in the last quarter with 139,000 pending, you had 7,630 that were adjudicated. So you divide that 139 by 7,630, you get 18.1. So that's 18.1 quarters to process that. That turns out to be about four and a half years. So for some of these folks, and this is assuming, Beth, that we don't add any more people, right? This is at stasis right now. Um, if we add more, obviously that would increase the time. But assuming we add no new people, no new applicants, it would take four and a half years uh, to actually work the way through just on chief of mission uh, determination, not even you know further steps on down with the actual uh, SIB petition. So um, again, a, a rather large problem. I would love to come with better news, but uh, um, the, the numbers are what they are. Yeah, you got to work with what you got. Uh, and here's another thing that when I used to write about this, it always sounded scary to me. And I think that probably in some of my early reporting, just like all the people, all these news reporters who are calling the U.S. RAP program a visa, which it's not, you know, there's so much, there are just so many facts, it's hard to get them right. And so in the beginning, I definitely believed something to be true that I think a lot of people probably believe to be true, which is that the number of available SIVs is that's it. That's all the SIVs available. And so according to that quarterly report, there are 13,187 remaining SIVs, which sounds terrible when you know that there are, you know, 148,912 in the pipeline and of them, you're likely to get 55,000 uh, that pass COM approval stage. Like you said, that's the first step before you get KBL and all these other things that come down the line. But um that sounds so dire but can you 
kind of there there is good news and bad news about that number. So can you kind of deliver all of that, the good and the bad at the same time? Certainly. Let's let's start with the bad though. Okay. Um, so you just referenced the I believe it's thirteen thousand one hundred sixty eight. That's important to note that that is as of June thirtieth. So again, okay. if you look at you know it's near it's been five and a half months um, at time of publication of the uh, uh, podcast here. It'll be nearly six months, right? And so you have to look at, we have been issuing SIVs in that time frame. Again, in the last quarter, we issued 1,368. So if you project a similar amount that have been um, issued, you're close to 2,500 that have been issued since that report, uh, you know, since the last data that was captured in that report. So really take 1,300 and minus 2,500 from that, or excuse me, 13,000 and minus 2,500 from that. So we are, you know, approaching you know four digit uh, levels left of, of visas mm-hmm. um now the good news um we have seen plus ups in recent history of basically four thousand additional visas per year um additionally there is there's pending legislation right now and i think we can get into it later but um in a bill called the afghan allies protection act a bipartisan and bicameral bill um it would plus that up a twenty thousand visa amount um we think that's that's critical obviously Anyone that is SIV eligible should have uh, a visa. Um, so if it's not enough, then we will need to do more. But we think 20,000 is a great place uh, to start. So, uh, you know, we have seen in the past that there is, um, you know, historic congressional approval to add 4,000 a year. Uh, and there's pending legislation that would add 20,000. Um, that's the good news. Uh, the bad news is it's not passed yet. And so until it's added, um, it won't happen. Uh, and quite frankly, you know, if you look at this year, um, that you know we are, Congress is supposed to be their their last working day as of right now uh, is going to be Friday. So it's going to be before this podcast is actually aired. Um, and unfortunately, I have to report that there is going to be no SIV legislation passed this year. So that four thousand did not happen this year. Uh, there were some really good, strong bipartisan amendments um, that were introduced for the National Defense Authorization Act. Unfortunately. Uh, in both the House and Senate version of those bills, they were ruled out of order. So despite being some of the most sponsored, they were, I believe in the House, it was the third or fourth most sponsored um, amendment of like 1,200 or so, didn't get a vote. So we know it's popular, and yet, you know, some of the dysfunction of Congress uh, just inhibits it. So I think that was, a, that was a bad news, good news, bad news sandwich uh, <laughs> delivered there. That was a real, that was a bummer at the end there. I did not like hearing that. You know, you keep seeing all this momentum for things like, or where I do, it's a confirmation bias because when I go to Twitter, it's all Afghanistan all the time. And there's always all this hope that these, these things are going to pass and that we're going to see movement for Afghans. And then it, it's just like, it always just falls off. And I, we can talk about that later, but it's very disconcerting to me and I don't understand why. So maybe you'll have advice on that. But before we get there, I want to talk about another thing that always frosts my flakes about the SIV program. So um, the SIV program is meant to take nine months from start to finish. Obviously, and let's look at Amadi, four years starting in 2012. I've got people I've been talking to who it's same thing. They've been waiting quite some time. Um, the latest quarterly report from the U.S. government said that they are taking 366 calendar days to process SIVs. Now, there are two things in there that are just totally disingenuous that I will flag. The USG portion and calendar days. So 
those are things that are immediately red flags. Like that's more than a year, definitely not nine months. And it's the USG's portion. So can you talk about how long the process is really taking and what the other parts are that add to that USG portion that's already unsatisfactorily long? Absolutely. So, you know, I would also point out, uh, you know, there had been a trend where the time frame for processing was coming down. And in the quarter two report, the State Department claimed 270. We can quibble about how accurate that was. Um, but, you know, they claimed 270 in quarter two. And then in the following quarter, uh, it was back up to over a year. So, you know, at least recently, kind of a disturbing trend there. Um, you also highlight a really important thing. U.S. government processing time. As I kind of mentioned, so much of the onus is on our SIVs. And that, you know, maybe the most onerous part is the HR verification and a, um, uh, a oh my gosh, a let, uh, LOR. Why am I having trouble with the Letter of recommendation. Thank you. Ooh, the R was tripping me up there. Uh, yeah, so, yeah. Uh, yeah, excuse me. The uh, So letter of recommendation. That's okay. I just got tripped up because I had a mental fart where I went, oh, calendar days. They're talking about Monday through Friday. And they're not. No, calendar days is really nothing. That's that's actually a year plus one day. So it's okay. <laughs> the LOR part. Keep going. We're doing great. <clears throat> I, I, I'm going to say uh, I was stuck on the fact you said frosted my flakes, which is now my new favorite expression. So it's, it's scrambled my brain there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's my aunt. I stole it from her. She's way cooler than me. Well, if you if you stole it, I'm also stealing it. So <laughs> That's great. It needs to be all through the world. So Yeah. Um, but no, so, um, you know, the HR verification and the letter of uh, recommendation, that can be quite onerous because, you know, you're asking Afghans to try and track down, uh, you know, oftentimes former employers that no longer exist, um, you know, if they were contractors. In the case of, you know, a lot of times if they're looking to, uh, service members that they served with, you know, maybe they've lost contact with them. Maybe they were fantastic interpreters, but, um, you know, have just lost contact through Facebook. And so we're now asking them to try and track down all of, you know, all these external things to help them prove their SIV eligibility. And then you also have, you know, certain cases where through no fault of um, the applicants, you know, somebody has gotten a hold of a previous applicant's um, letter of recommendation and has forged it and used kind of the same language, the same recommender. Um, applicant didn't know that, you know, the recommender didn't know that. And now you potentially have a case where, you know, they are going to, that, that LOR would be discounted or would be, you know, um, have to go through additional processing through no fault of their own, um, which can really slow it, you know, slow it up. Uh, one other thing that I'd mention is if you look around the time of the actual withdrawal, uh, and of the uh, non-combatant evacuation operation, you know, in the in the you know, just rush of that, we actually were telling um, SIV applicants to destroy their documents because the fear was if they, you know, if the Taliban caught them with those documents, um, you know, they would they would be killed. Mm -hmm. That makes sense, but now we have potentially destroyed all evidence that they had of their connection to the USG and of the SIV eligibility. Um, so yeah, there are, there. Are, that, that reporting, unfortunately, the 366 doesn't capture, you know, all of the time that it really takes applicants to try and navigate the, uh, uh, the process. And so um, it, it paints a, a, a rosier picture than I think is actually accurate. Yeah. And I will say, because we usually end with a letter from an Afghan, and I don't have one today, but I'd like to share a couple Afghan stories here about 
real LOR difficulties because when I first started covering post-withdrawal Afghanistan, that was my entire, my inbox in every social media account I had was full of Afghans sending me their entire packet saying, can you get me in touch with my supervisor? And I have sent so many supervisor emails and I've had, I had one instance where uh, a gentleman wanted me to get him in touch with the, um, the American military member he had interpreted for. And he came back to me and said, I don't really trust that I'd need to see him face to face. And I said, here's his email address, set up a Google meet, set up a zoom, set up whatever he's got the internet, he can do it. And I never got a response back, you know, and this is, it's a quick, that's a quick thing where you can verify if that person is the person or not, because I can understand the reticence to support someone that you're not certain that it was the person who was really there to help you, but he could have. And then there were times when I would call different numbers and email different people and they would just, they'd be like, yeah, I'm not really, I don't really trust you. I'm like, look at my body of work. I am the reporter that I say I am. And this person has had, you know, like, it, it's it's galling when you look at the stories of these individuals who are trying so hard or, you know, the person who has just, his story has broken my heart. I have pictures. He sent me all of his documentation, pictures of it before he had to put it into a fire barrel and burn it because the Taliban were coming to the place where he was trying to work and keep his family safe um, as a Hazara and already just in terror, they had murdered his dog and just destroyed his house. And he had had to flee into a tent. He had been living in a tent and then had moved to this farm to try to be safe. And the Taliban was doing their first, um, countrywide search. And that's when he said, forget it. I can't keep all this stuff anymore. Here are the pictures and I still have them. And here is the picture of them on fire. And that's, that's his life that he had to set fire to from what he could bring before when he escaped his home just you know Please devastating happy stories. Ending in the in this story no no unfortunately i have a lovely person who's actually been on the podcast to help me contact his former um his well someone who worked at the institution that employed him one of them i we reached out to everybody nobody wanted to help um, and that was very disappointing this one person finally because of the other individual not because of me wrote an LOR for this guy, combined LOR and HR letter, and it has gone back and forth with State Department now, I want to say four times they've denied it, and he's resubmitted with contract numbers, and they keep saying that it's not accurate, and they won't do it. And like, to be frank, too, that person who wrote the LOR and HR letter was not his direct supervisor, so that probably would have been flagged anyway. But I mean, this is this man didn't send me when he first reached out to me, he never sent me his documentation like everybody else did. He sent me pictures of his kids and they were just like my kids. It's almost the same age. I mean, it just, uh, my gut dropped when I saw it and I was like, I've got to do something because they were living in a tent. Then they went from being just these beautiful kids, so happy dressed in lovely clothes for their birthdays to living in a tent in dingy hand wash clothes. Just, yeah, it's those kind of stories that like you can't, you can't step away when you've heard stories like that. Totally. So anyway, I hijacked that there for a second. Thanks um, for almost making me cry mid-interview here. Appreciate yeah. That. Oh, know, I mean. Demolishing uh, whatever many... persona I thought I had of myself. <laughs> you would not be the first. I've cried on this podcast before, actually. Um, but uh, let's move forward to some other questions. Yeah. So I get questions all the time from Afghans asking how they're like, oh, hey, 
you can contact someone to move me forward in the processing queue. You know somebody. And like I'm like, well, A, I don't know anyone who can do that. And B, I don't believe that it's possible to be moved forward into that processing queue. So I wanted to ask you, you know, is there anything that an SIV applicant or an American who wants to help them can do to speed up processing, even if it's just like making sure that their your P's and Q's are all good to go? Yeah, uh, no, we, we get the same. And, you know, a lot of times we'll have, um, you know, senior, quite frankly, senior American, um, former military folks that will reach out to us and say, hey, this is a great dude. He's been waiting too long. You know, give us the secret sauce. And there's not. And, you know, that is that is unfortunately um, just an aspect of it. There is not, you know, some secret way of, you know, moving yourself to the top of the queue. Um, what I will say, though, is making sure your documentation is correct, incredibly important. I mean, really, just making sure that, you know, names match passports, you know, the kind of demographic information is complete throughout um, and matching throughout. Um, if you're moving locations, you know, each kind of case where you are, both geographically and in the process is different, but making sure that you're communicating with um, the State Department on, you know, if you're if you're moving locations, if you're ch if you're changing phone numbers or email addresses or anything like that, incredibly important. And it's, it's amazing how many of those kind of small things like that um, can cause a big issue. Because I mean, really, even if you, you know, simple kind of clerical errors in writing a family member's name could have it get kicked back. And you're talking about adding, you know, additional months to it. So I know that, you know, that's not a satisfying answer of, you know, here is the, the secret way to, to make sure that yours gets processed in, you know, exactly 270 days. But really, it's those kind of small things that are uh, the, the best way. And I will say, you know, the State Department, they really, I think, have done just markedly better in trying to communicate. And if you, you know, the State Department's website, um, I think, really does a great job at, you know, trying to explain all of the ways to make sure that you're not falling into, you know, kind of unfortunate pitfalls with um, just simple clerical kind of stuff. So I uh, really would refer people to um, the State Department to, to check those kind of things. But that's unfortunately a non-satisfying answer. Yeah, but it, I mean, it is important. Those are very important things in our system, you know, that, that I took German for some reason that I still can't ascertain. Um, but Kleinigkeiten is the word for like those tiny little details. And I love it. It's my favorite. It's probably my favorite German word. It comes to I'm mind before tiny little details. Three years. And oh, I yeah. Did not, I did not. Know <laughs> no, you didn't have to know Germany and Ger or German in Germany. Honestly, I, I was there and they just always spoke to us in English. And I was except I think a couple times I was on my own away from the other students. And I did get asked a couple of times, where's the ice cream shop or how far is it to the top of this tower? To which I responded a little bit far. Yeah. They were like, um, a little bit far. And then they started laughing at me and figured out I was American. So anyway, um, let's move over to, we've already started to kind of talk about the legislative side of all of this. It's, it's permeated the discussion so far because it's such a huge, uh, huge issue and it's something you guys are working on. So what is No One Left Behind doing or looking at on the legislative agenda that could help with some of these big items that you've addressed so far? Absolutely. So really, there are two pending standalone bills that we're very passionate about. Uh, so the first, I think, uh, majority of your listeners are going to be more familiar with uh, is the Afghan Adjustment Act. Um, so a bipartisan, bicameral bill. Uh, it was introduced in uh, uh, Gosh, in the last Congress, in the 117th Congress, I really thought it was going to get done at the uh, at the final hour, 
I thought it would make it into last year's omnibus funding. It didn't. Again, you talk about a popular bipartisan amendment. You had multiple senators speak out in favor of it and did not get a vote on the floor to be added to the omnibus. So unfortunately, it didn't get done last year and reintroduced this year. Uh, we're you know, incredibly supportive of it. Uh, makes a lot of you know really important uh, changes. Firstly, provides for domestic adjustment for uh, Afghans that arrived as part of the evacuation and Operation Allies Welcome. Um, it does that with another round of security vetting. I know I, I am not concerned about the composition of our evacuees, but some have expressed concern. I know they're good, dutiful, you know, patriotic future Americans, but um, it does provide another round of security vetting. Um, one of the things that I'll also mention is many of those people that arrived, you know, the nearly 80,000 Afghans that arrived during the, uh, the NEO, uh, you know, many of them are seeking SIVs right now. So we talk about how few SIVs are available. If they go through this uh, domestic adjustment here, they're no longer going to have to actually receive their SIV. Um, so those, you know, SIVs would not be consumed by those people They can be, you know, targeted for uh, Afghans abroad. So that's one of the really important things. Um, also establishes, uh, you know, an office in lieu of an embassy. So it does try and help uh, Afghans abroad. So, you know, in increasing uh, how the State Department functions, uh, task the State Department with developing a long-term plan uh, for uh, Afghan resettlement efforts. Um, so it does a lot of really great stuff. Um, other piece of legislation, and this one is much more focused on uh, Afghans abroad, both those in uh, Afghanistan and Pakistan, um, is the Afghan Allies Protection Act. So as I'd mentioned, it would add 20,000 additional uh, SIVs, would authorize those. I would also extend out the program five years uh, to 2029. Uh, so, you know, if both application and service uh, out to 2029. Additionally, it would make some kind of smaller modifications to the program. So currently, um, if a SIV, so let's say an interpreter, uh, they have to serve for 365 days to be SIV eligible. If on day 355, they were on patrol and they struck an ID and they had a bilateral uh, amputation of the legs and they could no longer serve as a interpreter. Too bad they are not SIV eligible, which is crazy to me. Um, mm -hmm. So this would, it would modify the program to allow for exceptions for those that were uh, wounded or injured in combat to get their SIV eligibility, even if they'd not served um, for a year. Um, also does, uh, allows for reimbursement for medical exam costs um, does some really great stuff. And then lastly, Beth, one of the things that uh, I don't know if a lot of people realize, you know, there's the Afghan SIV program. There's also something called the 1059 SIV program. And it was the original, it was the, the OG SIV program. Um, it was from 2006, and it actually is still an operative program. Uh, it's specifically for translators, but it allows for both Iraqi and Afghan uh, translators uh, to get an SIV. Um, it also has no sunset. Uh, it is limited to 50 per year, but it's one of those, we, we actually think it's a really important one and could be important going forward. Um, so the last thing the Afghan Allies Protection Act does is that 1059 program, very opaque, does not have any quarterly reporting like the Afghan program. Um, the Afghan Allies Protection Act would actually have uh, quarterly reporting for that program so we can get a sense of how it's actually flowing. Because, um, you know, again, although this is the uh, Afghanistan Project podcast, um, I know there are a lot of veterans that care about the Iraqi Terps. Um, this is a, you know, the 1059 is actually still being used to process uh, Iraqi interpreters from um, both, you know, the Operation Iraqi Freedom and New Dawn, uh, but then also Inherent Resolve. So uh, I mentioned that one as well. Uh, important to, I think, a lot of people that probably listen. 
Yeah, I would say, um, right. I mean, it's important. These are promises that we made, right, to people who risked so much. You know, to be a translator is to be up close doing all the things that the people you're translating for are doing. And, you know, how are you going to get future allies if you aren't treating your your previous allies the way that you promised? So it's absolutely vital to protect those people and to... You know, there's something I didn't I didn't tell you I was going to ask you about this, but I know that no one left behind was tracking the numbers of um, SIV applicants in Afghanistan who had perished um, while waiting for their SIVs since the withdrawal. And I wondered, do you have an update on that figure? So that was not the way we had done that. It was not it was a, it was a survey. Um, mm-hmm. So it only captured, it's not as though it's a, a unfortunately real time where it continues to add. Sure. So we had found, you know, 242 cases um, that of reprisal killing. Now, mm-hmm. where it became difficult is, you know, quite frankly, there's no freedom of press. Um, you know, verifying it became difficult. And, you know, some of it we were trying to specifically focus on SIVs. And again, some of those were kind of edge cases where maybe they weren't necessarily SAV, they were a Jeroa official. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, we found 242, you know, reports that were given back to us of, of people that were killed while waiting. I would also say, you know, you look at uh, uh, the UN uh, mission to Afghanistan, they released a report in September that had found over 900 cases of severe, you know, reprisal violence on uh, Jeroa officials. I believe it was over 200 uh, cases of uh, reprisal killings there. So, you know, we've we've seen ours, which are just, you know, fundamentally limited in the methodology that we can do. But UN, which does have people on the ground and does have, you know, folks that are actually able um, to verify, you know, they've, they have found over 200 instances of reprisal killings of former government officials, um, over 900, you know, cases of serious uh, brutality. And these are all undercounts. I mean, these are very clear uh, undercounts where, we know, you know, killings have happened, um, but unfortunately, people just aren't going to be aware of it, or they're, you know, counted as a simple kind of, you know, criminal or civil, you know, criminal kind of uh, issue, not actually a reprisal killing from uh, the Taliban. Sure. Yeah, and and that's the reason I thought of that while we were speaking about the Iraqi and SIV translators. Is I believe that like legacy, no one left behind, like pre-withdrawal, no one left behind had been keeping track of numbers of SIV applicants who had died. And I, I think that might've been Iraqi and, and Afghan I, SIV I applicants. I can't remember. This is, this is dating. I do remember seeing it. I think we, we had a total, if I remember correctly, of, of around 300 that were killed. Um, and I can't remember if it was Iraqi and Afghanistan, but these were, these were also, you know, interpreters that were killed on patrol with us. Uh, okay. I, you know, it is, it's incredible, you know, not only is, is, you know, their service just terrifying for the reprisal nature of it. I mean, a lot of these people served in a conflict zone with us for years on end. You know, when I, going back to Ahmadi, I, you know, it was my third deployment. I thought I was, you know, the bee's knees, like uh, this, you know, hardened combat veteran. Um, And the thing that struck me about Ahmadi was he knew exactly what I wanted to do at all times. Like when we were in a firefight, he knew like who needed to know what and who needed to be contacted. Um, and I, you know, I'd asked him like, how, bro, how are you so good at this? Not just like the translating, but like, you understand, you know, the battle space geometry and, and what's going on. He's, he had been at war since like 2009. Like he, he had fought with Marines in RC South, had been in RC East, 
had come back to RC South. But I mean, the dude had literally fought for like five years. And so I've gone on a wild tangent here. You got me spun up here, Beth. But, you know, it's not just the like reprisal nature of it, just the act of serving, um, you know, in conflict zones for years on end. I mean, there is incredible danger to that. And so um, yeah. in this previous report that you had mentioned, yeah, we, we had found over 300 instances where, you know, folks that ultimately would have been SIV eligible that were, you know, dutiful interpreters or, or you know, other folks employed by or on behalf of the U.S. government, um, you know, had been killed, uh, both reprisal, but then also just combat operations. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a devastating job. Uh, we've had, um, we've had one story on my friend Passoon, uh, who survived being blown up by an IED and was in, was comatose, then had to relearn how to walk and wasn't able to see for months and then went back. And this is after years of service already at this point, went back to go serve again, because that's what he knew. And that's what he cared about doing. He's like, these people are here to help. I'm going to help them. Like, and, and describe perfectly PTSD related to, you know, that, trauma from the IED as he anytime something would explode in front of him when he went back to combat zones, but didn't see it as that himself, you know, and now he's here in the US and he's a citizen, but like, he doesn't get to go to the VA. And I've told I've told that part of his story so many times. It's just these these individuals have given so much. And so it's just so important. What you're doing is so, so important. And I'm glad you're doing it. And I want to ask a couple more questions specifically about these. So the Afghan Adjustment Act um, to get back off of it's a good it was an excellent tangent. I love that tangent because it's any time that you get to kind of praise these individuals for everything they've done. They deserve every bit of it. But the Afghan Adjustment Act would also extend eligibility to the groups that we talked about earlier, female tactical platoons, members of the Afghan National Security Forces, prosecutors who most people probably think, why does a prosecutor need protection? Because the prosecutors were instituting Western style, or at least not Taliban style law. And that made them very much a target of the Taliban who wants to want to institute their interpretation of Islamic law, which is in antithetical to that. And so those I think it's 30, 30 Afghan prosecutors have been murdered. I think that's something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I bet that's an undercount. You know, (laughs) right. We may be able to track it better. Um, But I I, if it would not be an overcount, I'll say that. Yeah. So and so all these individuals would be added. They would be SIV eligible at this point. How many do you have any conception of how many individuals that would be that would then be added to the queue? Let me me quibble with you a little bit because some things that are in there. So female tactical platoon. Um, relatively small. I mean, I think it would probably be, you know, under a hundred or so of them. Um, and again, this is talking principal applicants. Mm-hmm. Um, others, though, uh, female members of the Afghan National Security Forces. So that would be, and that's just female members. It's not, oh, okay. it's, yeah, it's not male members of, um, you know, the Afghan National Army. It's it's just female members. Um, so you know, more there in the hundreds, possibly thousands. Um, you then have Anasoc. So currently, one of the things that uh, and again, I'm just I'm going on tangents left and right here, but just so you're because uh, I think it's it it speaks to how crazy the program is. So currently, um, organizations called the National Strike Units. So they were you know some tier one um, counterterrorist units 
um, but they were funded by the IC. Um, they were funded directly, though, in a way that the ANASOC was not. So right now, the National Strike Unit, sometimes colloquially called zero units, they're SIV eligible. However, if the guys that were doing the exact same stuff from, you know, ANASOC, and they were doing it with, you know, our tier one or tier two operators, but they weren't doing it with, you know, uh, CIA paramilitary officer, but doing the exact same stuff, they are not SIV eligible. That's crazy. This would, this would you know, fix that. Um, additionally, pilots, special mission wing, um, both of those would be in there. And unfortunately, Beth, I have to tell you, the uh, the prosecutors and justice individuals are not in there in the bill as it is currently drafted. So one of the efforts is to get them to amend the bill um, to actually include them. And okay. to be candid, you know, one of the ways that we look at as as much as I would love for the schoolhouse rock version of how a bill becomes a law where the standalone bills are passed. Unfortunately, that's just not reality in Congress. And, and it's likely going to move on another moving vehicle. We had we had hoped it would be the defense bill. I think there's a chance it could move as part of a supplemental funding bill that's being negotiated now. It could move as part of the fiscal year 24 funding bills. Um, so as it you know could potentially be wrapped into those larger vehicles, I think there is a chance to actually add the, the prosecutors and other folks that were involved in the justice system. Um, that did not actually answer your question, which is how many would it be? My sense is probably on the order of, you know, 5,000 or so. I think the biggest draw would be from ANASOC, um, so the ANA Special Operations Command. Um, so, you know, potentially up to, you know, 5,000 uh, additional folks, maybe 10,000. Um, I believe they had two brigades of uh, ANASOC at the time of uh, um, the fall of Kabul. Um, you know, it gets into how many folks were actually there. Um, but yeah, I would say somewhere between five and 10,000. Okay. Um, <clears throat> moving forward to Pakistan, we, it was a firestorm of media attention back when Pakistan said, Hey, we're going to deport all the Afghans and we're going to do it in a phase operation with, you know, illegal, illegal refugees first. And then this other group and then this group, but they never said anything about refugees who were specifically in U.S. processing pipelines. So the U.S. RAP program, SIV applicants who have been moved for their safety to Pakistan, where they can be processed at Islamabad. Um, <clears throat> and I know that No One Left Behind was one of many organizations that voiced their discontent with Pakistan's decision. And I just wondered, what's the latest update on what's going on with our individuals in Pakistan and what the Pakistani government is going to do about our our allies yeah um so i will say tons of sensitivity so I, I i'll be more measured than i normally am but um i'll talk at least public reporting so public reporting has said you know up to two hundred thousand afghans have left pakistan now the vast majority of those have actually been self-repatriations so it's been people that have have left before you know fearing detention or deportation they decided to self-repatriate um you know, some of those were folks that fled during the, uh, you know, the Taliban takeover. Some were folks that have been there for decades, you know, since the time of the uh, um, Soviet invasion. So it is it, it is split between those groups. One of the really kind of unfortunate, sad, concerning things is, you know, I think a lot of Pakistani society actually mobilized to carry out the deportations. And so it wasn't just, you know, actual Pakistani authorities, it was landlords that were saying, okay, oh, you're Afghan, your rent just went up 5,000%. 
Um, it was employers saying, hey, you're Afghan, great, you don't get to work. And so you have this just kind of pressure, which I think led to that high number of repatriation of self repatriations um, versus actual deportations. Now, uh, I will say the, you know, I, the, there have been plenty of times I fault the State Department we have here. Um, the folks that are on the ground that are working this in uh, Pakistan from the U.S. State Department have done a great job to try and mitigate um, mitigate the effects of what's going on. And, you know, Pakistan can be not the easiest partner all the time. And, and admittedly, Pakistan has, you know, security challenges that, uh, um, you know, the current government in Afghanistan doesn't make uh, easier. Um, so what we've seen, though, is for folks that are in, a, uh, you know, U.S. pathways, both U.S. RAP and SIV, you know, the, the U.S. government is, is helping them. Uh, there is a hotline uh, to Embassy Islamabad. So for folks that are being, you know, detained or running into issues with Pakistani authorities, um, you know, they can, they can call and the, uh, um, you know, embassy there is, is really doing everything it can to help them. And so uh, I will say they're doing, you know, Yeoman's work uh, in, in trying to help. But, you know, there are certainly people that would have, you know, good SAB claims or would have good U.S. RAP referrals um, that undoubtedly have been caught up in, you know, what Pakistan is doing. Um, that number is not zero. Yeah. Yep. It'll be, it's a, it was a very devastating situation. I'm hoping that all of those efforts the State Department is doing will, will pay off. It's um, trending better. I will say that. But, yeah. I, you know, also at the time of recording, you saw there was a suicide bombing. Uh, today is Wednesday the 13th. I think it was Tuesday the 12th. Um, but there was a suicide bombing that killed 23 uh, Pakistani uh, uh, soldiers you know, they, the Pakistanis are saying the the bomber and the fighters that uh, followed up in the complex attack were, um, you know, either Afghan or supported by, you know, Afghans. And so it, it's unfortunate because those kind of things could reverberate for just continued difficulties for, you know, the folks that are really just seeking refuge from the Taliban and are unfortunately being caught up in what the TTP is doing. Yeah, absolutely. Um it is such a, it's a very intricate problem set over there. Um, I don't miss it. Uh, what other efforts is no one left behind involved in to continue assisting our Afghan allies right now? Yeah, so I run our advocacy efforts, which, as I just mentioned, we have accomplished nothing in this year's Congress. So uh, clearly we, we, you know, I'm not the one that's doing stuff for Afghans. Uh, it is the incredible work that our uh, you know, team that, that helps with both evacuation and then resettlement does. Um, and so we are working with Afghans to try and help them navigate the SIV process um, you know, to make sure we're you know, coordinating between uh, applicants and states so that their you know, SIVs are processed, they're able to get flights out, they're able to get you know, ground transportation out if they need be. Um, but th that is really the work that I, I've been incredibly proud of. Uh, Peggy Phelps is our uh, director of evacuations. Anytime I get the chance to say her name, I do it. She is just incredible. You know, two years on, she still works 80 hours a uh, week trying to get people out. Um, you know, we had a mission for this year that was uh, save a thousand. And it was, can we be involved, you know, partnering with state to get a thousand people out of Afghanistan? Because of her incredible efforts, uh, we decided to change midway through the year to save 2000. Uh, and I believe the update I got, you know, a few weeks ago was for about 2,100 um, that we have helped, you know, move out of Afghanistan into Pakistan. Um, and then I think of the 2,100, it's like 1,300 or so have actually made it to the U.S. Um, so incredibly proud of the work that she does. On the uh, other side of the house, we also have resettlement. Um, 
Josh Emerson, who leads that, uh, does incredible work. And, you know, we, we've we've had in the past kind of a model of, you know, can we help Afghans, you know, bridge the gap where, um, you know, after they get the resettlement benefits that they get as part of, um, you know, they get uh, refugee resettlement benefits, just like a refugee would. But, you know, those run out and they have started a whole brand new life and a whole brand new continent. You know, how can we help bridge the gap? Um, so we have done, you know, short term loans and grants, um, but really we're focusing now on, uh, you know, long-term economic improvements. How do we make sure that we provide them the tools to kind of navigate, um, you know, finding a job in the U.S. And, and leveraging the incredible skills that many of them have into, you know, not just lower-level service economy jobs, not that there's anything wrong with that, but, you know, to make sure we're, we're taking advantage of all of the incredible tools, training, and knowledge that they have. Um, so really proud of that work. And then lastly, one thing that I'll give a plug, because, you know, just the demographics of who listens to uh, your podcast one of the other things we're doing is a mentorship program. And so for any of the listeners, I really would uh, love if you visited noonelef.org. Um, if you're interested, sign up and be a mentor. I mean, it's the opportunity to connect one-on-one -on -one with a single SIV um, to try and help them navigate uh, employment. And we try and match people both you know, geographically and then also um, you know, in their interests, their employment interests. Um, but you know, if you, if you wanna give back, if you wanna you know, help SIVs out, um, really would encourage you to uh, uh, to join the mentorship program. It's a great way to uh, uh, to really you know stay involved in the fight and do some good for our SFEs. I think that's so amazing because uh, that employment is it's a huge challenge when you get here. And I would just we just had React DC on um, two weeks ago. Yeah, and then that um, Hasib Delawar does their career pathways program, and he was talking about that process of sitting with someone who maybe is used to having a higher level career in Afghanistan, but now they can either figure out, you know, do I want to restart in a different career because it would take so long to you know, get certified here and to be educated at the, the level that I can do that job in the U S or, you know, and there's just so much to it. It's a very, I love that, that there's these opportunities for people to mentor Afghans and help them get on their feet and figure out, what are they going to do here? That's a that's the biggest part of your life is spent doing something for work, and so I hope that I hope some people take you up on that. Um, what well, else can listeners see you yeah. your name in our email inbox <laughs> as a mentor? Uh, you know. <laughs> um, I wish if I can come up with like an extra 10 hours in the week, I will be the first one there. That's yeah. my big thing now. I'm like, oh, oh my single mother trying to balance all the things. This is fun. It's super fun. Um, but if I do come up with those 10 hours, you bet my ass is going to be yeah. there. Um, what else can our listeners do to support you guys and to support Afghans, whether they are here resettling or in Afghanistan, still trying to make ends meet while they wait to get out? Um, this sounds trite, but it's true. Um, call your congressman. I, I'm, I'm dead serious. You know, um, call your congressman, call your senator, tell them to pass the Afghan Adjustment Act, tell them to pass the Afghan Allies Protection Act. You know, I, I said earlier, there's not a secret sauce. There's not, um, you know, there's not a way to, to improve this unless we do it systemically. And, you know, that means changing the statute around it. That means actually funding the State Department uh, robustly enough so that they can, you know, hire enough people and have the systems in place. And so, you know, truly, call your member of Congress and, and remind them that, listen, it's been over two years since we left Afghanistan, 
but it's not over for us. And yeah, there are a lot of other kind of competing geopolitical events out there in the world, but this is important and we need to pass those bills and we need to stand with our SIBs. Um, that is absolutely, you know, one of the one of the top things that they can do to support. Absolutely. Perfect. Perfect sense. Um, before we end here, I want to put out the call to all of our Afghan listeners, whether you are here in the U.S. or in Pakistan or in Afghanistan, we want to hear your stories. We want your stories to be a key feature of the podcast. So please send them to us in any form that makes sense to you, um, that speaks to your heart. Uh, tell us about any part of your experience that you feel like sharing and send that to our show address, which is the Afghanistan Project Podcast at gmail.com. Um, Andy, thank you so much. This was an awesome update for our listeners and, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly, the, the future, the, all those things were encapsulated in here. And it was great to hear too about what no one left behind is doing outside of just that SIV program, you know, helping the people who are currently mired in that program. So thank you for everything tonight. It was fantastic. Well, I, I really appreciate it. I hope I did Jeff proud. Uh, I, I hope this makes for a good bookend of the year. Uh, and I hope that, you know, soon, you know, next year we'll have some really good news on changes to the SAV program. Um, but really just appreciate you, uh, Beth, for, you know, continuing to tell the stories and for having me on. Uh, it's my pleasure. Um, and, you know, if there is a good update, come on, we can do a real quick yeah. good news story because everybody needs a good news story. Um, and with that, I just want to thank all our listeners for tuning in, for supporting the people of Afghanistan. Um, if you've enjoyed this episode, please make sure that you're following our YouTube page and that you've enabled notifications so that you get an update every time that we put something else out. Our usual schedule now will be Mondays, 8 a.m. for every drop. And that's after we're going to take a brief pause um, for the new year and holiday period. Um, but we'll be back in 2024, raring to go. So Tasha Kaur to everyone, and I hope to see you again soon.